sometimes you repeat something that you say just to make sure that people know it's important. Sometimes you repeat something you say just to make sure that people know it's important. And, and sometimes you say the same thing again with a little bit different words just to emphasize what you want people to catch so that by saying it again, they caught how important it was. Make sense? I'm seeing some chuckles. That worked. Good. Corny jokes work. Pastors get away with corny jokes. That's, that's cool. So if, if you're paying attention to what happened in the flow of Philippians, two weeks ago we looked at the four verses that finished chapter 1, and in chapter 1, verse 27, here's, here's what Paul said. He said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving by, side by side for the faith of the gospel. And, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, and Paul just had this admonition for the church there at Philippi. He says, listen, you, you need to stick together. You need to be united. You need to have one spirit and one mind because the faith of the gospel and the gospel advancing and going forward is so important. What, what we said two weeks ago was that you need to unite and fight together because we need to be united as a church on the inside because there is a world that needs the gospel on the outside and we are fighting against darkness itself to advance the message of the gospel. And Paul says that unity in Inside the church is important. And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 1, and he's going to take four verses, and he's going to circle back to this same thought. In fact, chapter in verse 2, which Jack just read, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Unity is so important in the church that he circles back to it, and he says, Listen, you as a church need to be united. This is really important to have one faith excuse me, one mind. You need to be stuck together in purpose, and Paul wants them to catch it. So he comes back to it a second time, and he's going to explain it again, and he's going to help them understand how they're supposed to get there. So that's part of my question. How will a church get to unity? How will a group of people stay united? And, and we kind of tend to think that maybe the way to unity is uniformity. Like, maybe we all just need to think the exact same thing. So if we can just, you know, go through enough process of figuring out what it is we need to agree on, then we'll all just sign on the dotted line and with, through uniformity, that will be unity or something like that. Well, that's, that's not what Paul says, and that's only a false unity, and you can never actually get to unity that way. Paul's going to do something surprising in this passage, and he's going to help the church understand that they need to be united together, and the only way to do that is through a Christ-like humility that puts the interests of others first. And Paul wants them to see that, that they can't put themselves first and ever get to unity. The only way to do that is to put the interests of others first. And so he's coming back to this topic of unity because he needs them to understand that. And unity is important in the life of a group of people. It's important in a family. It's important in a marriage. It's certainly true that unity is important in churches. 
So we've entitled this Unity in Community. How, how does Shawnee Baptist Church find unity? And why is it so important in the life of any group of Christians? And I, I am confident as we go through this that the idea of unity and relationships sticking together in unity, uh, and, and certainly even the idea of humility and putting the interests of others first, that is something that doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, pride is what comes more naturally to the sinful man. And so to have to put my own interest last and the interests of others first, I am confident that this affects every person in this room. I'm confident it affects every relationship in this room. I'm confident that it affects every single church since the New Testament times. The church at Philippi was... was was going through some of its own discord. In a few chapters, he's going to call out two people by name and say, look, you've got you to stick together. That's part of what is going on as he's stressing unity. And the church at Philippi is not unique. I have no problem saying that we as Shawnee Baptist Church can grow in our unity because as far as I'm concerned, every church in, in existence since New Testament times has needed to work in unity. Why? Because we all have to work on humility, and this is something that we can grow in together. And, and so it affects every person here. It affects every relationship here. It has affected every church since New Testament times. And what is at stake is nothing less than the effectiveness of our gospel witness to a watching world. Does that make sense? That, that, that what is at stake when, when unity is, is fractured in a church, uh, that, that the effectiveness of our gospel witness to a watching world will be diminished if there is no unity. That, now, that, that might seem like a bold statement. That might seem like I'm overselling the importance of this passage to say that this affects every single person in this room. But I'm asking that by God's grace, he will show us as we go through it that it, it really does affect every single one of us. And I hope that there's encouragement, too. This isn't in any way meant to be browbeating or that, that we are somehow, you know, every church is what this affects. It should be encouragement because there actually is hope. Paul is going to give us the best example in the person of Christ. It's Christ-like humility that unites people. It's what we're going to remember when we get to the end of our service, what Christ did for us as we partake of the bread and the cup, which represents his broken body and his shed blood, that he was willing to lower himself and be humble himself so that we could be united together both in a personal relationship with God but also united as brothers and sisters in this thing called the church. And so the gospel is what creates that unity and we want to keep that unity. We want to strive for it. We want to be united together because the very effectiveness of our gospel witness is at stake. And Paul knew that for the church at Philippi. That's why he comes back to it again. He already told them in chapter 1, verse 27. And now he's going to come back and just give them a few more encouragements. Here's how you get to unity. This is what you need to be able to accomplish this and see this played out in the life of the believers there at Philippi. So here's, as we go through this passage, here's the one thing that I want you to capture. And if you're taking notes, as we see what Paul unpacks and explains, here's, here's the one thing that we need to catch. The only way to unity is through humility. The only way to unity 
is through humility. Unity doesn't come in uniformity. Unity doesn't come in putting your own interests first. Unity comes in Christ-like humility when we put the interests of others first. And so we're going to jump into the passage and ask that God will help us to see some of these things as as we unpack it. So chapter 2, verse 1, and here's what Paul says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's going to stop right there. He's he's stacking up some conditions here. He's giving some phrases before he gets into the meat of his argument. He's just trying to help them understand why this is so important. And verse, the, the first word, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, some of your Bibles, some, uh, a, a, way to translate, a way to translate that could be therefore or since. Since, since everything that he's been talking about, uh, excuse me, not since, therefore. Everything that he's been talking about from verse 27 through 30, and he was explaining to them that, that they need to, to stand together. In fact, they don't need to be frightened by their impo- opponents because they're, they're engaged in this same battle of suffering that Paul has been engaged in. And, and so he wants them to stay united so that they can continue to spread this gospel message just like he himself is fighting for. And he says, therefore, because of all of that, now if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, so if, if their relationship relationship with Christ gives them encouragement if it builds up their spirit. If there's any comfort from love, the, the love that God has for them should produce both a love for God and a love for others, and they've seen that in the love that Paul has for them. That should bring a comfort to them as a people, even in the midst of their suffering. If there's any uh, fellowship or participation in the spirit, it is the word fellowship there, and Paul's reminding them that since, since the Holy Spirit produces in them a participation or a fellowship in the Spirit. And even though he's using, our translations go with the word if, these are, these are certainties. He's saying since this is true, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort in love, since there is participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, this is just like a heart-based appeal on their relationship with Paul and the affection and sympathy that they have. He says this, complete my joy. So the way that they respond, their attitude of unity is going to, is going to bring joy to Paul because he loves these people dearly. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He wants them to have unity. He wants them to have a singular purpose. He wants them to have one mind. And so at the beginning of that phrase and at the end of that phrase, twice he tells them to have one mind. Or your Bible might say to be of the same mind. Or your Bible might say thinking the same way. Uh, We don't catch this real easily in our English translations, but in verse 27 of chapter 1, he already told them that they needed to, uh, he wanted to hear that they were standing firm in one spirit with one mind, and that's like the word soul. It's a noun. He wanted them to have one mind, a thing, and he comes back to it in chapter 2, verse 2, and instead of a noun, he uses a verb, and he says, be thinking one way. Be be thinking with one mind. He doesn't want them just to have the thing of one mind. He wants that to characterize the way they think. This is now the mind that they're supposed to have. They're supposed to think in this way, and it will come uh, as, as they have the same love and as they have Uh, one purpose, being of full accord, that they're united together. And so unity is so important in the life of this church, and Paul wants them to grasp that, and he's asking them, be of one mind, be united, have the same love. 
And he's going to tell them in verse 5. He's going to very distinctly say, so the mind of Christ is what you need to have among you. And he uses, on Easter Sunday several weeks ago, we went through verses 5 to 11, and it was Christ's example of humility that that's the mind that they're supposed to have among themselves. So how are they going to get that unity? I mean, how does that come about? And verses 3 and 4, he, he helps them understand this is where that kind of humility comes from. This, Excuse me, that kind of unity, here's where it comes from. Unity comes through humility. And so he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's the Christ-like humility that Paul admonishes. He says, you need to be united, and the only way that's going to happen is through Christ-like humility. And he tells them three, in these verses, there's three things that they shouldn't do, and there's two things positively that they do need to do. And, and as we look at that, it, it helps us understand a little bit of what, so what, what is the humility that he's talking about, and what does it produce in their lives? He says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition. Have you ever seen people that, that the things they do, the choices they make, their behaviors, are just rooted in a selfish ambition. They want their own interests first. And Paul says there's no place for that in the church. You, you won't have unity when you have selfish ambition. Or, second thing they're not supposed to do, is to have conceit. He, he's talking about those that are prideful, that they don't accurately view themselves. The, the King James Bible uses the word vainglory, and that word actually helps us understand what, what this word is speaking about. It, 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 they have a glory that's false. They have a false sense of their worth. There's a prideful conceit that they're built up, and when, when people in the church act that way, then it's simply just going to create a, a disunity that, that doesn't accomplish what God wants. And there's a third thing that they can't do, jumping down to verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Now, he doesn't say that it's wrong to look at our own interests. Certainly, everyone naturally looks to their own interests, but he, his point is you can't only look at your own interests, right? In the church, we're called to a greater calling, a greater understanding of unity, and so we can't just consider our own interests. Instead, there needs to be something else, and here's the two positive things coming back to verse 3. Count others as more significant than your Themselves. That's not easy. To, to think that other people are more important than us. I mean, that's, that's getting to the root of sin. That's, that's getting to the heart of pride that we naturally think we're more important than others. And Paul is saying that that won't lead to unity in community. You, you can't look to the interests of yourselves. You've got, you've got instead to count others as more significant than yourself. So if you're, if you're finding yourself naturally relating to other people, whether it's in your home or your workplace or this church right here, and your first inclination is that you are certainly more important than they are, if you're finding yourself thinking that you're the smartest person in the room, these kinds of things that, that certainly you don't need to hear what anyone else has to say because there's no way they're more important than you, these kinds of things should be red warning flags to us that, wait a minute, am I, am I counting others as more significant than myself? And it's something that we would want to look at because Paul's saying we shouldn't be doing things out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. There's a second positive thing he says uh, in verse 4 that instead of just looking at our own interests, we've got to look to the interests 
of others. We've got to put their well-being first. That doesn't mean we always do what other people want. Sometimes the best interest of others is actually painful, right? Uh, Sometimes wanting their best good is difficult. As a parent, you understand that with your kids, right? You don't always let them have their way because you've got their best interest. I'm looking to a long-term interest uh, of things that you want. And so Paul is just helping them understand you can't put yourself first. You need to put others first. And he uses a word that's very important that we need to understand what this looks like. And he says, in humility, verse 3, Count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is a difficult thing for us to grasp. As prideful human beings, our natural inclination is to rebel against God. We don't want to be humble. What does is, what is humility look like? Let's spend a little bit of time. We'll look at a few quotes and just trying to understand what, what is humility. Because there's a way that we naturally think of humility. We think of humble people as those who... Um, They're always telling you how terrible they are or they're deflecting praise. Uh, You know, in that sense, they might be um, um, thinking of themselves lowly, right? They're, They're trying to almost, you know, put themselves down in the mud because they don't want anybody to think that they're prideful or lifted up, right? The flip side of that, the polar opposite would be the prideful person who's always telling you how humble he is, right? Uh, I could tell you a list of my greatest attributes, and the first one is how humble I am, that kind of thing, right? Uh, That that, you know, certainly wouldn't be humility. So we're not going to get much help in defining humility from from the world and the way the world thinks about humility because we, we just can't understand humility without the the example of Christ that he's going to show us a few verses later. So in trying to come up with a, a, a definition of humility, um, I still remember it, it was about 10 years ago when I was on staff at the camp in Iowa. And to, to this day, one of a very important mentor in my life, I remember when he was going through staff training and he, he was teaching on the concept of humility. And he said that humility is having an accurate assessment of the gifts and abilities God has given you. Make sense? And so as I've kept working with that definition and read the way other people talk about it, humility would be having an accurate assessment of who we are, especially in light of who God is. It's very, very important to when we're thinking about, well, who am I and who is God, and therefore I want to put myself in the right place. Because the worst thing would be the... the, the, the uh, the worst thing that could happen would be if out of selfish ambition or vain glory or conceit, I had an inaccurate view of who I was, and, and, and therefore I, I didn't serve others well, but instead I tried to puff myself up, right? Make sense? So humility is having an accurate assessment of who we are, especially in light of who God is and what he's done for us. So there's a verse in the book of Romans that I want you to see where Paul talks about humility, and he says this. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In the passage, he's going to go on and talk about some of the gifts that God has given to the body, and he's helping them to think. He doesn't say, I command every one of you to never think of yourself, right? He doesn't say, I command every one of you to consider yourself worthless. He says, don't think higher than you ought to think, and with sober judgment, because you need to have an accurate assessment of who God is and what he has done for you, and if God God has given you gifts and abilities. They're not for your glory. 
They are for serving others and pointing others to God. And so, side note, this has nothing to do with Philippians, but side note, if you want help figuring out what your gifts are and how God has gifted you, you're probably not going to figure it out on yourself. It's probably going to take the church to come around you and speak into your life and say, I, I see the gifts and abilities God's given you. You, you have a strength in this area, right? You, you, you can, uh, th- this is the way you're gifted. And so as, as God uses the church to mold and shape in your life, now, now, humility then is having an accurate assessment of, of those gifts and abilities, right? And, and, and then using those for God's glory. Because even if God has given gifts and abilities, it's not to puff us up. We, we, are, we are worthless without God's grace involved in our life, and God, use, God um, uses that in our lives so that we point others to him and give him glory. And so that's the kind of humility that we as people need to have. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has a section where he talks about meeting a humble person, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, but what he says is that when, when you meet a humble person, it probably won't look anything like what the world says is humble. It won't be always degrading himself, but rather he probably won't look like he's taking any interest in himself at all. He's probably going to be taking an interest in you and asking you questions questions about you. And it's not that he, as many authors have said, it's not that humility is thinking less of self. It's, it's thinking of self less. Humility is not thinking less of self, but it's thinking of self less. And so C.S. Lewis points out that, that those who, th- who are, are positive that they're not conceited are probably very conceited indeed. And, and it helps us understand, well, this, so this now is the Christ-like humility that, that Paul is talking about, that we as people need to be willing to put the interests of others first, because within the church, once selfish ambition and vainglory get involved, well, then that's just going to lead to all kind of all kinds of division. And Paul wants them to realize they got to put the interests of others first. That is what is so incredibly important. And so Paul explains this as he's going through it. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he's going to say in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. This is where this mindset comes from. So here's what's important for us as people, as churches in our relationships. We need unity. That is important. And it will only come through humility. So if, as you think about that, is this kind of unity, is this kind of humility a struggle in your life? Do you see times where you struggle to put the interests of others first? I got five people in my family. One of them can't talk, and it's a struggle for all of us to say on the same page. Like, it just, it, it is. Every time we go on vacation, I got to go through the same speech, right? We load up the car, we're getting ready to go, and I go through this speech. Look, vacation's exciting. We get to do a lot of things we don't ordinarily do, but I'm promising you, you will be disappointed on this trip. You don't get to do every fun thing you want to do. And, and, and if you get sad at the fun things you don't get to do, it's going to ruin the trip. And I'm pretending like I'm talking to Reed and Ivy, and the whole time I'm reminding myself, right? That, 
Like, I'm looking forward to this glorious vacation and, like, the, you know, just I got the interests of others to look at. It's just going to ruin the trip, right? Do you ever catch that struggle? Like, and so, of course, it bleeds into the church. Where does this come from? Well, this isn't unique. This is why I'm confident it's true of every person in this room, every relationship, and every church, because it goes back to the beginning of human history. When you go to Genesis chapter 1 and God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden, right? And God creates this beautiful community for Adam and Eve. There's no sin in the world yet. He puts Adam and Eve together and, and, and they have this special relationship. And then do you notice, uh, just, just like by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, once sin has entered the picture, do you notice how quickly things fall apart? So Genesis chapter 2, Adam sees his wife for the first time, right? And Adam sees Eve and he breaks into joyous song. Do you remember this? Like he's like, wow, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is woman, right? He, he's just enamored with her. Incredible community, right? A couple verses later, sin is in the picture. I was talking through the sermon with Jack last night, and he, he pointed this out, that you notice what happens. So you, you, you go from bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, now sin enters the picture, and he's thrown her under the bus, that woman you gave me. She's the one, right? You, you see how quickly that happened? Like, he loves her, she's the greatest thing. Sin enters the picture, selfish ambition, I'm going to put my own interests first. That woman, God, the, I'm, she's the one. And by the way, you gave her to me, right? Uh, what happened to bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? So every Every relationship has been affected by this since the dawn of time because we have been infected by sin. And right away, God says that he, in Genesis chapter 3, he says that he will send a rescuer, right? That someday he will deal with this evil that has been introduced into the garden and that someday an offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, right? And that God would deal with this once and for all. And so the, the fact that I'm confident that this is every person, every relationship, every church, that's not discouraging to me. It's not discouraging because Christ has provided the solution. And that's why he said in chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And we looked at these verses back on Easter Sunday, and, and, and its primary purpose is not to teach us about the deep doctrine of who Christ is. Its primary purpose is to serve as an example of the things that the Philippian church needed to know and understand, that here's who Christ is. He didn't have empty glory, vain glory. He didn't have selfish ambition. He was willing to put the interests of others first, and he lowered himself and came to this earth and became obedient to death. And Paul says, that's the mind that you as believers need to have there at the church in Philippi, and it's the only way that you will get to unity. It's the only way that you'll be able to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, that, that we put the interests of others first because we're engaged in this conflict, in this battle to advance the message of the gospel, and we, we want God's word to go forth, and so we put our own interests, we don't think of those first. We put the interests of others first, and that is where unity comes from. 
And so I want you to think about this. If you take that kind of unity, that kind of Christ-like humility, what will that do in our lives, right? Think what would happen to the marriages in this room if we put the interests of our spouse ahead of our own. Have you ever got into a fight with your spouse because they were putting your interests first? I can't believe you put my interests ahead of yours. Like, that's not the way it goes, right? It's the exact opposite, right? Usually the way that conflict happens is when we advance our own interests ahead of our spouse. Imagine what would happen to the racial tensions in this country and what would have happened throughout the decades in the past if we put the interests of others first and if churches led the way in that. We could see God do incredible things. Teens, imagine what would happen if you lived your lives putting the interests of others first. You live in, in a world, in a me-first world, and I'm not being mean or negative on teens. You're simply following the example that's been set ahead of you by generations before you. And, and so imagine if, if the friendships and relationships that you have, you put the interests of your friends first, that it's not about me first, but it's about the interests of others. And you will live a lifestyle that then will cause your friends to raise questions questions, and you'll have, actually have answers. This is why I live this way, because it's what Christ did for me, and so therefore I put the interests of others first. Imagine what would happen when churches put the interests of others first, and, and the kind of unity that can happen within that. I want to take one second. A couple weeks ago when I went through this unity together, I had one point of application to the idea of church membership and what took place there. I want to talk about this just even in that same point of what it means to put the interests of others first when churches gather together and vote, so we at, at Shawnee Baptist Church are uh, uh, an example of what is called a congregational, uh, congregationally governed church, meaning the members of the church have a, a, a responsibility to come together at times and to vote. And what's taking place there? This passage doesn't talk about voting, but there's a mindset that we need to have when churches gather together and make decisions, whether that's whole congregations, whether that's the group of elders gathering together, whether that's the deacons gathering together. There's a mindset that's real helpful. One of the things that creeps into our mindset in thinking about congregationally governed church, we think that if we're a Remember, we get to vote, and whoever has the loudest vote or the most votes win, right? We, it's easy for us to think that, that the will of the people runs the church because we're in a democratic government nation, right? And so obviously the will of the people rules the nation, but that's not how God set the church up, right? God set the church up with Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd of the church. So what happens when we come together and make decisions? We're not trying to discern the will of the people. We're trying to discern, to, to determine the mind of Christ. And we believe that it's the people of God through the spirit of God determining the mind of God. If Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of the church and then then who, who, who knows the mind of Christ? Who can, discern, who can determine the will of God? Well, it's not any one particular person. It's not any one group of people. We, we believe that each one of us have a relationship with God and access into his presence, and therefore we need each other to help determine the mind of Christ when we gather together and make decisions. And so here's a beautiful thing that this means. Unity doesn't have to be uniformity, right? And so one of the things that is, is cool, it, I, I love it when there's unanimous decisions. You know, that, that's neat. That's exciting. 
But that doesn't always mean unity. One of the most beautiful things that takes place is when it's not unanimous and people still are willing to say, I'm united in it. We, we, we determined God's will. We're going to go forward with God's will for the church. And that's a cool thing that we realize even in the face of difference, we can be united because unity in community happens with a Christ-like humility when we're willing to lower ourselves and not fight for our own interests, but we put the will and interests of others first. It's a, it's a cool thing to think about, and I would encourage you, you to keep thinking about that. You have a quote in your bulletin that says this, If selfish ambition and vain glory are sure bets to erode relationships in the church, then the surest safeguard to a healthy church is when considering each other as more important than oneself characterizes its people, especially those in positions of leadership. And so if I've stepped on any toes this morning, understand that I, I realize as I've been studying it this week, I'm preaching to myself first and, and, and that God would, would do this even in my heart because it's important for us as a church to be people who are, have Christ-like humility. We're going to gather here at the table, and, and, and the church at Corinth, some of the instructions that Paul gives to them, we're going to read a passage of instructions, but before and after it, he's explaining to them, and he's saying, listen, you, you didn't always get this right. When you gathered together at the table, some of you went ahead, and you put your own interests first, and some of you ate before the others, and, and uh, some of you, uh, one person goes ahead and, and eats too much, and another person goes hungry, and and what was designed to display the unity of the church, the participating in the bread and the cup, was actually exposing the disunity in the church because they didn't gather together with a like-mindedness and a unity of spirit. And he has strong words for them to help them understand why this was such an important thing. And he explains to them in verse 21, For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He goes through the instructions that we'll read in a little bit later on in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. And so we're, we're actually going to gather and remember what it was that Christ did for us because the only way we'll be able to display this Christ-like humility is through what Christ did for us. And if we aren't united together in spirit, if there's relationships that aren't right, then it, what it shows, it exposes some of the falsehood of what we're proclaiming, that, that Christ died to create unity Christ died to give us a relationship with him, to give us community, and, and uh, we as believers need to keep working, striving towards that because the world is watching. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 17. And I'd like you to see these verses when Jesus prayed shortly before his crucifixion and he prays that believers would stay united, that they would stay together in one spirit and one mind. And he says this then, I, uh, I do not ask, or he say, I'm not praying for these only, my disciples who are gathered. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's even you and I who have come generations later, that God is praying for those that have uh, understood the gospel as it is passed down through the lives of believers for years. 
He's praying that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see what's at stake? The unity of the church gives credibility to the witness of the church. The unity of the church gives credibility to the believability of the gospel, that this message is true. And so we as believers need to work at it. So here, here's, here's what is taking place. The gospel, the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for sin so that any who turn from their sin and find, uh, place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, that gospel message creates unity. It gives us unity with God. It gives us unity with other believers in the church. So the gospel creates unity, but without a Christ-like humility, congregational unity will not be maintained. So the gospel creates a unity that without Christ-like humility can't maintain itself, and nothing less than the, than, uh, the believability of the gospel message is at stake when that message is compromised. And, and so we as believers want to work hard for the sake of our witness in the world to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ.